gates open, off and Skyly Sensory stayed in the gate. Besbo Rogue being set alight immediately by Cyril Small and racing to the lead. But Bo Rogue won't give up, he's still in front. Groucho's grabbing him now. Groucho coming at Bo Rogue, don't play, getting a rails run. Bo Rogue in front, he's got a heart as big as himself. He'll win, Bo Rogue! This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and the High Gang Group. Racing New South Wales and the Australian Turf Club will present a race day to remember on March the 19th. Only one of the 10 races will lack stakes classification, and that's the midway. There are five group ones. The $5 million Longines Golden Slipper, which is looking fairly open at this stage. The $1 million Agency George Ryder, traditionally a Doncaster lead-up, $700,000 Randvet is shaping up as a Queen Elizabeth Stakes rehearsal. The best sprinters will contest the $700,000 Galaxy and the $600,000 Sky Racing Rosehill Guineas will be a great derby prelude. Add to that the Group 3 Queen's Cup for the Stayers, the Group 3 Birthday Card Stakes for Phillies and Mares and the Group 3 Bisley Workwear Epona Stakes also for the Phillies and Mares. This will be a race day for the ages. A gathering of thoroughbred stars at Rosehill Gardens on Saturday, March 19th, Longines Golden Slipper Day. Although only 26 years of age, Bob LaPointe was already well on his way in the business world when he arrived unheralded in Sydney in 1967. As he waited at the baggage carousel at Kingsford Smith Airport, he was suddenly gripped by the realisation that he didn't know a soul in this strange city. He was here with a special brief from the American owners of the Kentucky Fried Chicken phenomenon to investigate the possibility of opening a chain of stores in Australia. He had a letter of introduction to the company's banker. He had a great business instinct and boundless energy. He no sooner had Kentucky Fried taking Australia by storm when he launched the Australian arm of Pizza Hut, followed quickly by Sizzler and perhaps the one he enjoyed most of all, Lone Star Steakhouse. In organising a constant supply of quality chickens for the rapidly growing KFC chain, he met the famous Ingham brothers, who not only gave him the business deal he was seeking, but also introduced him to Australian horse racing. In the beginning, this was Bob's recreation, but later became yet another successful business venture. In subsequent years, Bob LaPointe owned or part-owned some elite gallopers and developed his beloved Muskoka farm on the Hawkesbury into one of the finest spelling and pre-training properties in the country. Muskoka has been his home and his passion for more than four decades. He sold a major part of the property to business associates a decade ago and only recently decided to relinquish his remaining quarter share. Bob and his wife Wendy will soon walk away from the dream property with mixed feelings and a million precious memories. My last interview with Bob was conducted in 2002 for Sky Racing's Inside Racing program in the idyllic surroundings of Muskoka Farm. 20 years on, it's time to update that interview 
by podcast. And Bob LaPointe, I hope I find you in robust good health. Absolutely, uh, John, and thank you for having me on uh, on this podcast. The um, Muskoka is, uh, has been a special part of my life, made possible by some of my uh, the success of some of my earlier interests, including Kentucky Fried Chicken and and the others that you mentioned. Will the new owners leave Muskoka as the great thoroughbred operation it is, or will it be sold on to the highest bidder down the track? Well, I would like to think that they would continue the traditions of Muskoka. It, it's been going on now for, for some time. Um, whilst I bought it in 1969, the thoroughbred interest only developed in about 1979, I guess it was. Um, when I bought a few yearlings in Adelaide. Mm. You've always been a very practical man, and when it comes to business, you don't usually let sentiment get in the way. But I'll be very surprised if you don't feel a tinge of sadness when you say goodbye to Muskoka, a word used by a First Nations tribe in Ontario in the 19th century. And what does it mean? It means uh, the land of the blue sky. And that's what it's been, Bob, for all these years on the beautiful Hawkesbury. Yes, that's right. Muskoka has enjoyed tremendous patronage over the years from many leading stables. And you tell me you've been averaging 120 to 130 horses a year for breaking in an education. Uh, yes, uh, that has been uh, that has been going on for probably the last twenty years, I would think. Mm. Um, made possible by you know those uh, clients who have supported us, like Denise Martin and uh, the Triple Crown Boys. Mm. The syndicators, uh, Bob, have brought thousands of smaller owners into the game and uh, they continue to do a tremendous job. The big difference today is the fact that there are more of them. Yes, it's a, it's a very, um, uh, first of all, it is a, a foundation of the future of, of uh, thoroughbred ownership. It has been for a long time. So uh, I, I believe that they will continue to do a great job. They're passionate about their horses. Um, I know from my association with Denise and, and uh, you know, with um, uh, the boys from, uh, from Triple Crown, they, uh, they are, you know, they treat their horses like their family and the results have been evident. Uh, I think it's a great team uh, to have um, them and our people uh, helping their horses um, achieve um, greater things. Let me take you back to your youth in Windsor, Ontario, where you grew up with brother Bill and sister Sandra. In late teens, Bob, you enrolled for a course in hotel, resort and restaurant administration at Ryerson College. Uh, I think it was called in those days. It's now the Ryerson University, where you would eventually become fraternity president. Did you know way back then that hospitality was the business you wanted to spend your life in? Well, 
um, I think as a call it a 15 year old, um, I had very little idea like most 15 year olds, uh, what they were going to do or where they would end up when they were adults. And, um, I went, I was fortunate to, um, apply for a job in a resort in, um, in Muskoka, north of Toronto. The resort was called Cleveland's House. It is still there today. Mm. And it was one of the best uh, resorts in the greater Muskoka region, uh, which was a couple hundred miles of lakes and rivers. And uh, that's uh, why I called um, Muskoka or gave it the Muskoka name because it reminded me so much of those days. The manager of that resort, um, Bob Cornell was his name, um, he um, was a graduate of Ryerson. Ryerson was the only um, university or college in, in Canada at the time that offered the hospitality course, and he had graduated from it. And so I decided it would be a, uh, a good uh, opportunity for me to do the same. So. Oh. You got to meet a real-life legend in the early 60s who would have a major bearing on your future. This man's name was Harland David Sanders, or Colonel Sanders, the founder of KFC. Was he wearing the outfit uh, that created his worldwide image? He, he, cer <coughs> he certainly was, um, uh, Johnny. He... Um he always wore it. I never saw him without it, actually. Um, and um, I worked with him for many years. Um, what happened was, as I was in my final year at Ryerson, um, about to start my final year at Ryerson, uh, I had a summer job in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, uh, mm -hmm. which is like getting a, a, a job today from Sydney to, say, not quite to Perth, but say past Adelaide. Mm. And um, I uh, drove up there and uh, on my own and worked for a guy who was called Joe Young. Uh, he was the president of Kentucky Fried of Canada, a company that was just starting and I'd never heard of it, nor had many others. Um, so anyway, uh, Colonel Sand, it was near Mother's Day when I arrived. Colonel Sanders arrived to promote uh, Mother's Day for Joe Young to promote KFC in Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, of course, met him as one of the staff. Um, and uh, I was, you know, overawed by the guy. He, he had a wonderful presence about him. And he, he was uh, an imposing sort of person. And uh, anyway, he came back, he left, he was only there a day or so, and he came back late that um, summer, uh, just before I was leaving, actually, to go back to university. And uh, he, um, he said, or I said to him, um, do you think I could have a franchise for my hometown, Windsor? And he said, uh, well, he said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 21 and uh, just just turned 21 and he said well i'll tell you what um you're enthusiastic and joe speaks well of you and if you can get the money uh you can have the franchise mm -hmm. so um that created or presented a couple of problems the one i didn't have any money and uh, 
um, I had to decide on my going back to my final year or trying to find the money required to start my first store in, in Windsor. Yeah. And so uh, I ended up um, um, not going back to uni. Uh, my parents uh, were upset about that. But um, what happened was I looked around. I met some. I met a banker in Windsor, um, and uh, he uh, said to me one day, he said, look, uh, this is a totally, you know, sort of left field sort of application. We don't have many 21-year-olds coming in here wanting to go into business. Mm-hmm. And if you can raise, I wanted to borrow 7500 mm-hmm. And um, anyway, he said, if you can raise um, a seven and a half, we'll give you seven and a half. As it turned out, they only gave me five, but that was fine. Mm. And uh, that was enough for me to renovate a building, uh, uh, buy some equipment, and open my first KFC takeaway. Mm. And it was hugely successful. Um, and uh, much to, uh, I was always, almost the most surprised person that it was as successful as it was. And as a result, after uh, less than a year, nine months or so, I applied to borrow another fifty-five thousand from the um, one of the banks. Um, it was, I think, called the Ontario, whatever it was, bank, um, and it, it helped start up companies. And uh, anyway, I built three more uh, in the next six or eight months, and so I had four going by the end of the second year. Mm. And Colonel Sanders, uh, he and I were, you know, sort of pretty good friends in the sense that uh, I was the youngest in the entire KFC system. There were 650 stores in the U.S. at the time, mm. and uh, I was the youngest, and he was the eldest, so um, we um, we sort of uh, got on pretty well. Yeah. Well, he eventually sold the chain to two young men before retiring in Louisville, Kentucky, Yes. He died in the year of 1980, Bob, which you'd be well aware of, at age 90. But he left an indelible imprint on your life, didn't he? He did. Um, he, uh, in in terms of, um, he he was he always resented the fact he sold KFC to to um, two young guys, well, two one young guy, John Y. Brown, mm. who was only five years older than me at the time. And um, he, uh, his, John's partner was a, an investment banker from Nashville, um, and uh, he um, he was uh, he was the one that provided the money. And and actually, strangely enough, the colonel sold it for 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 only two million dollars. And in those days, uh, that wasn't a huge amount of money, and some of our a few franchisees could have put the money together and bought it from him, but he never told anyone. Mm. It was sort of, he was almost embarrassed by the fact he was going to sell it. And I think it was just a point in his life where he thought, well, you know, I can use the money and whatever. So, uh, you know, that's what happened. And mm. he, he, um, he uh, went on to remain as a sort of a, promotional face of the company but you know he was he was unhappy he was definitely unhappy after that 
Mm. We used to talk about it a bit. Mm. Well, you went to see the two young men to whom Colonel Sanders sold the business and they commissioned you a little later on to launch the Kentucky Fried Chicken concept in Australia. Landing in Sydney, Bob, and not knowing a soul must have been pretty intimidating. Yes, well, actually, um, what happened was, (laughs) and they would... They wouldn't like that I would say this at this moment in time, but uh, in those days, not a lot of Americans knew where Australia was, <laughs> and uh, it uh, went. It was me actually who suggested to them that uh, they wanted me to expand because I had six restaurants open and and two under construction when I was twenty five. Mm. or 26 and um, and uh, they wanted me to expand into the US but living across the river from Detroit Michigan in 1967 there were tanks on the streets and there was a lot of rioting and you know it was awful that there, there was you know race riots and uh, anyway I decided I didn't want any part of expanding expanding into uh into detroit and they offered me you know other cities in the u.s and uh, i just felt that i wanted to do something else and i Mm. was a a really good student of geography and australia was always interesting it was the place in the world furthest from canada it had the same it's the, the english language um you know the same monetary system and it just it appealed to me enough to want to go there. And I, when I told John Y. Brown that that I was going, he said, well, you go and represent us. And I said, well, first of all, I said, I'm not saying I'm going to stay. I'm just going for a bit of a holiday. He said, oh, we'll pay for it. And I said, no, no, I, I don't want you to pay for it. I, I'm happy. I want to go there independently. I want to have a good look and decide whether it's a place that, um, might be attractive for KFC. Mm. <laughs> and so that's what I did. Yes, and it was attractive and remains so. Bob, there are a million wonderful stories. I love the yarn about your initial meeting with Jack and Bob Ingham at their old Kasula office. Uh, you made a very bold prediction to them about your potential buying power, didn't you? First meeting with Bob and Jack was amazing. Mm. Um, first of all, I, I uh, again I was on my own and I walked into their office and uh, and uh, they shared an office in those days. In fact, they did until probably they, uh, the day Jack died, but mm. um, in Liverpool. But um, they said to me, uh, you know, tell tell us about Kentucky Fried, and I said, well. Um, I, I can only tell you what's happening now and what I think is going to happen. Mm. And uh, I said, uh, you know, we're probably one of the biggest users now of chicken in the, in the U.S. Um, and, uh, he's, and so I said to them, look, um, we, uh, we could become one of your largest, if not your largest customer. And they laughed. They laughed. They used to like to laugh when they were together. Yes, they were. They were. They were good fun. And yeah. and so, when they stopped laughing, uh, I said, "Well, 
I'm 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 actually serious about this, and uh, <laughs> I, I I think I think you'll find it'll be an amazing account. And uh, so anyway, going from one store, we opened our first store in April '68, and uh, mm. it was on Wood- Woodville Road, Guildford, not that far from Kasula, I might say. Yeah. And on the very first weekend, our first few days, we opened. We ran out of chicken, and so Jack and uh, I called Jack and I said, "Look, we need some chicken desperately." And he said, "Well, we haven't got anything cut um, because KFC is cut into nine pieces." And and so mm. Jack opened the factory, and Jack and a couple of my people and myself, we were cutting chicken madly to uh, to feed the the demand. Mm. So anyway, um, they they. They couldn't get over this. They thought this was unbelievable. Because remember, in those days, KFC, first of all, was we only sold chicken in those days. Mm. And uh, it was a red and white striped roof, pretty <laughs> garish for the average Australian uh, of those days. And um, the councils didn't like it because it was garish. Mm. And so uh, we, we uh, but we plugged on and, and things started to go extremely well very quickly. Mm. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, you got KFC up and going all over the nation. You then introduced Pizza Hut to Australia. I think it was around 1984 you when you embraced the Sizzler concept. Yes. And that chain closed down as recently as 2020. But, yes. Bob, I think the one that you like best of all the TV ad said there's a little bit of Texas down here with big juicy steaks and ice-cold beer. Sawdust on the timber floors in all the restaurants, members of the staff line dancing between the tables. The Lone Star restaurants offered a fun way to dine. They were great fun. Absolutely. And um, we um, – it was uh, – Ironically, it was something that I wasn't that keen to do at the time. Uh, I had uh, lots of other interests and, you know, doing this. It was was, a friend of mine called me and he was himself a KFC franchisee and a Pizza Hut franchisee in Wichita, Kansas. Mm. And um, anyway, he said, look, you know, this is maybe the best thing I've ever done. And uh, we should you know, you should have a go. And, and I said, well, I wouldn't do it unless, um, you know, you were equal partners and you funded the first one. <laughs> and, uh, so, so, so anyway, there's that we, hard business edge they talk about. <laughs> well, better his money than mine. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. uh, it was, um, look, they were hugely successful in the u.s again uh i can't remember when when he bought the chain uh his name is jamie coulter when jamie bought the chain uh there were only eight stores in the u.s and by the time he was talking to me i think there were like near a hundred or something goodness grew very grew very quickly and it was a public company and the stock was trading at unheard of multiples and everyone was doing well and so i said um you know, look, I'll I'll give it a go if if we're partners. So we became partners. Mm. When you committed to giving racing your serious attention, 
You engage the services of the late Les Young to help you find the right horses. In fact, you and Les formed a company called Doncaster Bloodstock, which Les operated expertly for many years. I love the story of your first foray into the yearling market. You got Les to go to the Adelaide sale where you bought six and the subsequent results were astounding. It was absolutely unbelievable. They won 29 races between them um, and every one of them won. Mm. And uh, so I thought Les was, you know, a genius, which he was actually. <laughs> oh, he was, and, yeah, great and, uh, man, yeah. But, you know, the interesting thing is, um, and one of those yearlings was a filly called November Rain, or mm. that we called November Rain. Yeah. And uh, she ended up winning three oaks, and I think I paid 11000 for her uh, on the day or at the time, and, and um, mm. sold her to John Massara for 500 So yeah. yep. uh, I thought that was pretty good farming, and mm. uh, I decided that, you know, we'd probably buy a few more here and there. Mm. And uh, anyway, it, it attra- the, the industry attracted my attention, and I just sold. I think I just sold my KFC uh, interests, or about to, or something. Mm. Yep. So that's that's kind of what happened. Bob, you've already mentioned your purchase of the famous Nebo Lodge training stables at Rose Hill, which had been developed originally by Stan Fox, whose widow Millie continued to race horses for a number of years. Finally, she felt the need to sell the place with the proviso that she could continue to keep some of her horses there with Brian Mayfield-Smith, and Brian was to become your trainer shortly after. But you got Robert Sangster involved, and this is another terrific story. You called Robert Sangster in England and suggested that he should race horses in Australia. Um, actually it's, that wasn't quite the way it happened. What happened was, um, Robert was, um, at the time he, his main and only trainer in Australia was Colin Hayes Mm. and he and Colin were very good friends and good mates. And if you remember, uh, I, I mentioned a little earlier that, um, I bought my first horse from Colin and, and I, and I was a reasonably well-known person in South Australia or in Adelaide in those days. Mm. So um, what happened was um, uh, Colin, uh, sorry, uh, Robert um, was in Melbourne actually for the Melbourne Cup, I think. Mm. Um, And he was um, going out with Susie Peacock at Mm. the the time. Mm. And anyway, I, I cold called him. I'd never met him. And uh, someone told I think Les told me he was in town. And I had already bought Nebo Lodge. Um, in those, I can't remember what I paid for it, a couple million dollars or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, Millie, inter- interestingly, Millie, Millie did not want to sell it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, she, her idea was, and Stan at one stage, I think, was the largest owner of 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 thoroughbreds in the country he was okay? yes, he had about absolutely. 400 yeah. years, I mean, mm. in those days and so millie's idea was and ken Enver was her advisor yeah 
and Ken and uh, w- w- advised Millie to race the ownership down to a point where Nebo was no longer viable and then sell it. So I said to her, well, what, what was Stan's dream? I mean, why did he own, you know, all these horses and how did all that happen? And she said, well, you know, he wanted to win the premiership and, and Stan never did. But, uh, um, so I, I made the bold prediction. I said, well, let me think about that because, you know, there may be a way to do that because I, I own Muskoka at the state and I bought Muskoka in 69. So this was like, mm. you know, a lot later. And, uh, I think it was 84 or mm. something anyway i i i called um robert said i bought this property um i'd love to sell you 49 percent of it mm. and he's he said look bobby said i've never owned 49 percent of anything in my life why would i do that mm. and and i said well then i'm talking to the wrong person because there needs to be someone in control and it isn't going to be you Mm. And uh, nothing is better to control things than than having, you know, major equity, the major equity. So I said it's fifty-one forty-nine or nothing. Mm. So anyway, he said, "Let me think about it, and I'll get back to you." So he, to his credit, he called me a day or so later, and he said, um, "I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to, I'm happy to do it." Um, and um, I said, you should be racing in Sydney. It's the major racing center anyway. And so you should, um, you know, redirect some of your horses uh, into Sydney. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I then hired, uh, he and I interviewed Brian Mayfield Smith. Uh, sorry, he and I interviewed Jimmy Cassidy. Mm-hmm. We'd already hired Brian, and that was Les's suggestion, I might say. Um, and so that's that's kind of really what happened. It, it um, we ended up. Uh, Millie said she'd stay in for a third of the horses. I put in a third, and uh, we ended up with a hundred boxes, hundred in work in Sydney, and fifty in work here at Muskoka. Yeah. Pre-training. Oh, yeah, it was huge, huge, and and the premierships fell to the operation like nine pins. Yeah, well. That was, um, uh, uh, look, probably as much good luck as anything, I suppose. But um, one of the things I noticed about Tommy was that he was almost a one-man band. I mean, he and uh, uh, his girl in the office, whose name escapes me. Pauline uh, Boucher. Pauline. Pauline. Okay, Pauline. Mm. Pauline and 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 that was it. So he relied on Pauline to as the support service for mm. all the things he was doing. And remember, Tommy had endless numbers of horses, endless owners, mm. and um, and he ran it like a military operation, which was fine. Mm. Uh, except you have to, in my opinion, anyway. I was used to managing multiple unit restaurants mm. so we could run one or a hundred one didn't make any difference mm. so we applied the same principles to the thoroughbred to thoroughbred racing and we started 
to look at each horse as an individual. Was it giving us a return on investment? Is it mm. worth keeping? We, we were pretty, you know, pretty critical. Mm. Anyway, um, Brian, as you know, uh, had not a lot of social skills. He wouldn't mind me saying that in those days. Um, he his whole life was his horses. He didn't socialize. Mm. He and M Marie did a fantastic job of managing that operation. And in the first year, uh, nineteen eighty four, we won the premiership. Yeah, and uh, and and we won it by a reasonable margin. Mm. Tommy couldn't believe it. He, he was actually in shock. I think when I when I spoke to him afterwards, <laughs> and and I said, Tommy, don't feel bad. This isn't about your training. Uh, you're still a wonderful trainer, great trainer, but you're a, a, a shitty manager. Pardon my French, but uh, <laughs> I, I said you, 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 we beat you on management. Our people uh, and our operation is better yeah. than yours, mm. and that's that's it. So yeah. simple as anyway, that. He, he and I remained friends. Uh, so um, you know, and po points of difference uh, in in business uh, and in racing was important to me. We had to have a good trainer. We had to have a uh, good jockey. We had to have good stables, good backup. Mm. And uh, that's how I started the feed company, mm. um, the Mitovite yeah. operation. Um, that became, in my opinion, one of the reasons why we were very successful. Mm. Uh, our feed was better. And I remember before I, on Nebo Lodge, I had horses with Tommy and Neville and Bart and all of them, and they all claimed to be the best feeders. But mm. because I come from the food business uh, or a food business background, um, mm. I noticed that they all fed differently. Mm. So I also started to ask them about levels of protein and this and stuff. They look at me like I was, mm. you know, from from Mars. <laughs> and, and and so I decided to go into the feed business and uh, performance horse feed. Mm. And uh, thus, uh, that's how Mitovite started here at Muskoka. Mm. Um, we, I found a guy called Sam Rutherford. I remember Sam, the late Sam yeah. Rutherford. He was a goer. Right. Yeah, he was a real goer. He, yeah. um, how that happened was... Um, I said to Les, is there anybody in the country that's producing feed on a multiple scale mm. basis? And he said, look, I don't think so, but let me look around. Anyway, he found Sam on the Central Coast. Mm. And uh, Sam, uh, so at, in those days, I owned a helicopter and uh, we flew uh, Brian, Les, myself and someone else from Muskoka might have been. Tim or somebody. Anyway, we flew to to Sam's place, landed there, and 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 I said to Sam, "I understand you can feed um, multiple numbers of horses. How many are you doing now? How many can mm. this equipment do?" Mm. And he said, "Oh, I think we, we could do forty, mm. and uh, in, a, in a in a day." So I said, mm. uh, "Could you do four hundred? And uh, he he looked he looked at me like maybe I was pulling his leg. Yeah. And uh, he said, "Look, you know, maybe if we did this and modified that." Sam was a great inventor. And mm. uh, um, anyway, so I said to him, "Sam, could you do four thousand? Mm. 
and uh, he he looked at me and he said, "Now, that's not that's not possible." Mm. And I said, "Well, Sam, anything's possible." I said, "You just have to have the people who can innovate and and um, make it work." Mm. So anyway, to make a long story short, I said to Sam, "Not quite that day because." We wanted to think about it a little bit and see if there was anyone else we should be looking at. Mm. Couldn't find anybody, so we went. Uh, and I said to Sam, "I'll buy the business. I'll I'll fund the business. We'll, mm. we'll own it equally. Mm. I'll fund it, and you um, you run it. But it has mm. to be done at Muskoka." I said, yeah. "We have a hundred horses there at the moment. Fifty will go on your feed, and fifty will go on our traditional um, feed." Mm. And um, and then we start seeing the difference mm. and uh, in in the performance of those horses, mm. and uh, we knew we were on something that was quite special. Yeah. Bob, um, we've exhausted a lot of our time, and we've barely mentioned a, one of your horses uh, to this point in time, other than November Rain. So let's pause for a moment for a quick little break, and uh, with time on the wing. Uh, we're going to profile some of the great horses with which you were involved in the uh, early days in Australian racing. Back with Bob LaPointe after this. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30 mil of Recuperate drawn from the 500 mil bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase. By the time the Lone Star Steakhouse chain was firmly established, you had a very high profile in racing and you came up with a unique concept to help promote the business and at the same time support the Variety Club of Australia. You supplied the horses, 1% of restaurant turnover paid the bills and 50% of prize money won went to the Variety Club for underprivileged children. Variety benefited by a very large sum of money, Bob, over five years. Yeah, I think it was uh, just an idea that um, appeared to be a win-win for everybody. And uh, I know, um, you know, uh, our our people, um, you know, the restaurants, uh, the horses only raced in the neighborhood of the restaurant. So if the restaurant was in Perth, uh, then the horses raced in Perth or, or Launceston or Brisbane or wherever. And uh, that... Uh, you know, the local staff and customers um, would be excited by the fact the money was going to their community. Many handy horses carried the colours of the Lone Star Syndicate, but your headline act was Iron Horse, 
who won 11 races, 13 placings, almost 1.3 million, most of that when trained by Gay Waterhouse. He was sold later in his career with all of the Lone Star horses when your five-year charity involvement wound down. But with Gay, he won an Epsom, he won a Wellington boot, he won a Gosford Cup, he ran third in a Caulfield Cup and third in another Epsom. Bob, he was a tough, genuine horse. He was well-named, wasn't he, Iron Horse? He certainly was, uh, John, and, and um, actually he still lives here. He's still still at Muskoka. So, right. Um, his, he's been a tough uh, horse and, uh, and he... He likes it here, and uh, so that's all. That's all good. Mm, he'd be a hell of an age then. Yeah, he was racing what in 1992 or thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. So he'd have to be 22, 23. T- try 33. 33. Yeah, he's he's still going. He's still well. He's still alive. He's wandering around the paddocks. Mm. Um, so he's he's got to be. I'm sure he was racing in the early 90s. Yeah, well, certainly um, the mid-90s. Yep. Yeah. So anyway. he's got to be, yeah, he's got to be re, uh, approaching 30, and he looks, he still wanders around uh, like a young horse. Mm, yeah, that's him, durable and tough. Yep. Bob, let's look at some of the really outstanding horses you owned or part-owned, beginning with the unforgettable Emancipation. In the early 80s, you formed the Muskoka Partnership with friends and associates and you were able to lease this grey filly by Bletchingly out of a gunsind mare. She won 19 from 28, six group ones, and she won $550,000, which makes you realise how much prize money has escalated in this modern era. I'm sure you'll agree her Doncaster win as a three-year-old filly in 1983, was her finest moment. Absolutely. She, um, great story. Um, I won't spend too much time on it, but Les picked her out of a paddock, um, you know, somewhere, I think it was near Dubbo, or yeah. where the, uh, Mark Huff lived, who owned her. Um, she was, there was a drought on. She was very thin. Uh, looked, she had a, her head looked bigger than her body, and when she arrived, and she never stopped eating, uh, and uh, I think she won maybe her first start. I can't remember whether it was her first or second, but she showed plenty of ability, and uh, Neville uh, trained her and did a great job. Your part owned a horse called Handy Proverb, who was one of your great favourites. He had twenty two starts, nine wins. Five placings, the Victoria Derby, the Queensland Derby and second to Bone Crusher in the AJC Derby in which things didn't really go his way. No, that's right. Um, he uh, he was a remarkable horse, really. Um, he was only small. He, I'm try, I, I would think he would be 15-2. Mm. Might, might be 15-3, but he, he sure wasn't a big horse. No. And uh, he um, showed amazing ability, um, and uh, he sort of, uh, as as I recall, his um, his near second in the in the AJC Derby uh, 
was um, Jimmy. Jimmy came in and he was in tears. Mm. Um, he had to go around the field, couldn't get through, um, and um, and j- just ended up. Uh, I think it was a close second, and um, otherwise he would have been one of the few horses to win the three main derbies. Mm. Diamond Shower was a terrific filly by Iron Horses sire Zephyr Zip. Her seven wins included an AJC Sires Produce, a Wakeful Stakes and a Victorian Oaks. You were very fond of her. Yes, well, um, she uh, showed, again, uh, remarkable um, ability. Uh, she um, she was a uh, moderate-sized filly. Um, we had an offer for her, I think, after she won the Sires Produce or wh- whatever she at some stage and um les came to me and said we've got an offer for diamond shower for a million dollars uh from the u.s Mm. and i said to him gee that's an awful lot of money and uh anyway i said to cliffy vincent owned half of diamond shower Mm. and so i called cliffy and i uh, on the friday and i said look uh, les tells me we've got an offer for diamond shower for a million dollars uh, and I said, I guess you've got two choices: one to sell, or uh, to send me a check on Monday for five hundred. Mm. And so Cliffy sent me a check on Monday for five hundred, yeah. and uh, so that was an amazing story. Mm. Um, and uh, um, that was that was just you know one of those things that rarely happens to you, but mm. it did. Yeah, you loved a horse called Color Page, who won a Sandown Cup. He won a VRC Queen Elizabeth, he won a Rose Hill Cup, he won a Prime Minister's Cup. He ran close seconds in an Epsom and a Doncaster. He always flew just under the radar, didn't he, Colour Page? Yeah, he he was an amazing horse. Probably maybe one of the best horses, I think, of all of them. Um, he uh, he was just a Tad unlucky, and as you said, in, in he ran in a lot of Group One. He, mm. I think, he ended up only running in Group races, mm. and uh, he um, he was a horse that had amazing. Brian trained him, and Brian loved the horse, and and uh, and he might have taken him a little bit too easy. I don't know. Brian could tell you that, but mm. uh, we retired him very early. I know he had sore feet. Mm. Um, or developed sore feet, and, uh, and Brian said, "Look, I can't, um, I can't put this horse through um, any more pain uh, with these feet." And um, so we, we we just retired him. I think he was only yeah. just turning six or something. Um, so you didn't anyway, want, didn't want to put him through any more pain. Pain. That's right. You were so, part of a small group to race hit at Benny who won a Doombin 10,000 in a galaxy when trained by Neville Begg. Uh, yes, that, that's a, a really interesting story. Um, hit, hit a Benny, uh, uh, trained by Neville, as you said, won uh, a lot of races. He, he won. The, he was a great sprinter. He won the galaxy in the shorts, and um, he was by Baguette. And uh, anyway... Uh, we had a chance to um, run him, or Neville suggested we run him in the uh, Rothman's Hundred Thousand. And uh, Ronnie Quinton had ridden him in every one of his wins, I think, um, and he'd won quite a few races. 
but on this particular day, Ronnie had a full book of rides and, and or thought he was going to have a f- full book of rides. And he said, look, um, the horse is drawn barrier 20. Uh, with all due respect, uh, I think that's a big ask. I'm not sure he can, uh, can win from there. And so I called Colin Hayes and said, Colin, um, uh, I'd like uh, Brent Thompson uh, to ride hit a Benny in the in in this race uh, in the Rothmans hundred thousand, and I said, "Look, I I, I never bet, so I I, I can't uh, sort of. What I'll do is I'll give I'll give uh, Brent uh, Brett five thousand dollars to ride the horse, mm-hmm. win, lose, or draw. Mm-hmm. If he runs last, he gets five thousand. If he wins, he gets five thousand. Yeah. That's it. But I said he has to ride him like he can win." Mm-hmm. So when I was in the enclosure with Neville and uh, Brent and, and I, I had met Brent before, I don't know that Neville had actually, but he, anyway, I said to Brent, I said, I think this horse can win this race. I, he's drawn barrier 20. And the only other horse to have won that race from barrier 20 was Baguette himself. Mm. Yeah. So, at this point in time, what happened was, um, I, so I said to Brent, just keep riding him forward. Do not try to get a sit and hope to for something. Just keep riding him forward. So that's what happened, and and the, he won by three and a half lengths. Mm. Um, oh yeah, he bolted him. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, John Kelly called me uh, from mm. New Haven. Mm. and uh, said we'd like to buy the horse. So I think we sold him for a million two or whatever it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he was a very, very smart sprinter hit at Benny. Not many fillies win an Oaks and a Derby, but Bravery uh, succeeded in doing that, Bob, in 1988. Yet another one by Zephyr Zip, a stallion you had a lot of success with. Yes. Uh Zephyr Zip was an outstanding. He had that great Queensland family behind him, but he he um, he was an outstanding stallion, sire. Mm-hmm. Bravery again, not a big horse, um, and uh, I always found that little. I, I've never been put off by small horses. I, mm-hmm. I think often their motors are bigger, proportionate to their body weight, um, and they keep going. So. Um, anyway, Bravery, uh, as you said, amazingly won the, the Oaks, Queensland Oaks and the Queensland Derby. Yeah. And um, Mike Willsey, who I knew very well in those days, we owned the helicopter together, um, uh, said uh, he would like to buy Bravery. And, and so uh, we sold Bravery or I sold my half of Bravery to Michael. Yes, and, when uh, he was setting up Transmedia Park Stud. You know, we've got to give your darling wife, Wendy, a little mention here. Not only is she a very capable horse trainer, she also happens to be a very highly skilled veterinary surgeon. You're the envy of a million Australian racehorse owners for the simple reason uh, that you have the luxury of discounts on vet bills. <laughs> you're right about that, and you're, you're absolutely spot on. Uh, Wendy does a, an amazing amount of work around here, and uh, and you know not just with rehabs, but if a horse has got any problem whatsoever, um, she's looking at it every day. 
and then we have a series of other uh, vets who assist her um, on a full, you know, on a who visit and look after our horses. But now Wendy uh, was a protege of uh, of Percy Sykes. Mm. She worked with Percy in her early days at uh, at the vet practice uh, at Randwick Equine, and um, and so. Uh, She's had a wonderful grounding. She was Tommy Smith's vet for a period, Bart's. Mm. Uh, and um, so, you know, it's it's handy to have uh, someone as competent, capable as, as Wendy is to um, to have a look at, uh, you know, each horse uh, if and when uh, it needs looking at mm. out of hours or otherwise. Yeah, Wendy's been training for about 10 years, never uh, more than a handful of horses in work. She's won something like 32 races. Perhaps her favourite was Hello Mister, uh, with whom she won five races, including one at Royal Randwick. And Cathy O'Hara was the jockey in all of those five wins. Bob, I'm just looking at the timepiece and we have exhausted uh, our supply uh, of good old time. It's been a delight to talk to you. Uh, thank you very much for being with us on a wet Sunday morning and uh, congratulations on all you've achieved. Six decades uh, of tremendous success in business and you've certainly left an indelible mark in Australian racing. Well, thank you very much, Johnny. It was been, uh, it's been wonderful having the opportunity to chat and I look forward to seeing you in person uh, in the near future. Thank you, Bob LaPointe, on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder, time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website mitovite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world.